that. Uh, Open your Bibles, please. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus began in chapter 5 to describe to his disciples, his followers, what those people look like who are citizens of his kingdom. Not people who are Jews, not people who might even be Jewish and follow the Jewish religion, but people who are following him and are seeking the kingdom of God. And he has told them a number of things. Uh, He's begun teaching. You remember the Beatitudes. That may be something familiar. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Uh, He teaches about being righteous in heart and not just in outward appearance. He's taught about prayer and personal relationships. And now he's bringing this teaching time to a climax. And we're in the very last paragraph of the very last part of this. Look down at verse 24. Jesus says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished teaching these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. He gets to the point now where he says, we've we've gone through this. And those who are wise, those who will respond correctly, those who are looking to become true citizens of the kingdom of Christ are going to be people who build their lives on the word. The message of Christ, the sure foundation. In other words, if you want to grow as a follower in Christ, you should hunger for or feed on the Word of God. There are lots of verses in the Bible that actually talk about the Bible itself. And we could have a great time going through a systematic theology about bibliology and inspiration and all those kinds of things. But the Bible gives its best testimony. It says that it's inspired by God literally breathed out from him to us. It's also living and active in our hearts and minds as we strive to follow Christ. It is God's means of instruction for us. And because of this, we're told time and time again, meditate, think, strive to understand these things. So as we've gone through our series on growing and what it means to grow in Christ, we've been saying that the goal is to be like Christ. We want Christ-likeness. We don't want to look religious. We don't want to look good. Now, I I think we probably all do, but the point is we want to do the right thing. I think within each one of us as we know Christ, there is a desire that we do follow Christ. And we struggle when we don't. It's frustrating not to get it right. It's hard when you know there's something in your life and you're working on it and it just doesn't happen. And you really wrestle with that. And many of us question God. Does God care? Why doesn't God care enough to help me with this? God may care, but maybe he's not strong enough to get me through this. And what we find over and over and over again is that we need something outside of ourselves. 
It's just not going to work if it all relies on us. And if our lives are to be founded on the Word, and the goal is Christ's likeness, then I think the easiest tack for us to take as we look at this is to find out what did Christ say about the Word? How did He use the Scripture? Did it make a difference in His life? Did He say it should make a difference in the lives of other people? What did He do with it when He talked to people about their needs? So what I want to do this morning is go through, we'll look at four areas, we'll kind of move quickly, you'll see one building into another, the last two we'll probably take more time on. What we want to see is, what does Christ say about the Word if the goal is Christ's likeness and He's given us instruction? He has shown us over the course of all the Gospels, and we're going to stay right in the Gospels. We're only staying those four because I don't have a lot of time, and we're not going to try to take the whole Bible in. But as we look at what Christ Himself said, what He expected people to do, I think we can find great comfort there because we do have instruction if we'll just take time to look at it. All right? So, first thing we need to notice right away, there are times when the Bible addresses specific problems. Christ did this in times of temptation. So as we look and say, when we face temptation, I mentioned that a little while ago, what do we do? How do we affect that? What Christ did was He quoted the Scripture. You're very probably, very most of you are familiar with Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. Right before the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible says that the Spirit led Christ out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And he was out there 40 days. I don't know about you. I don't think that would have been a fun time. Uh, How he ate and all the things that went on. All we know is by the time they got to this point, Christ was physically weak. And he was probably emotionally strained. He had been out all by himself for all of that time. And just like the temptations we faced, he faced varied temptations. So Satan comes to him and says, hey... I can take care of you. You know, you know about this. You're the Christ. If you're hungry, turn these stones to bread. You know what? I'm sure life is difficult. You know, you're right here at the start of your ministry. How are people going to receive you? You know, let's do this. Let's go to Jerusalem. I'll take you there. We'll go to the pinnacle of the temple. That's a place at the temple. It's a corner. I think it's the southwestern corner. It overlooks a great plaza. There were shopping places under there. There were homes all around. It was very visible. Anybody looking around the city would see this place. It was probably 50 feet high or more, something like that. He says, you know, if you want people to really notice, if you want them to pay attention to your message, here's what you do. Jump. Because the Bible says... That if you, you, if you even stubbed your toe, the angels would keep you from falling. So surely if you jumped off the top of this thing, they're going to catch you up and people are going to see angels. Wow, this guy's great. We need to listen. If that's not enough, Satan said, let's try one more. If you really want to control this world, I can make it happen. Worship me. This is my world. I'm the prince of the power. Of the, I'm the prince of this world. Worship me, and you can, you can run the whole thing. I'll sit back and let you do it, and you'll only answer to me. That's pretty good. So he was tempted physically. He was tempted for prestige and pride. He was offered power. And in every case, here's what he did. It is written. He quoted Scripture to them. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from God. He went back to the Word. 
Don't worship anyone but God. Don't tempt God. That's like the guy that shakes his fist out on the street and says, if there's a God, he should strike me dead with a lightning bolt to prove he's here. And then when he doesn't do it, see, no God. We don't test God in that way. Instead, we submit to God. So in times of temptation, Christ relied on the power of Scripture. He faced a difficult situation. He went to the Scripture and said, God's got an answer. God can take care of me. God knows what he's doing. Now, I don't mean to imply by any stretch that if you just quote a scripture, everything's going to be okay. You can go to Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and go hit a home run, right? That's what they do on TV. You know, I'll play a good football game. It doesn't mean that, by the way. We don't quote scripture as if God was a genie in the lamp and we rub on it and say, you know, sim, sim, salabim, boom, and God's going to give me a million bucks. But we do rely on scripture because it's God's message to us. We submit ourselves to God's teaching. So when you are faced in a temptation, which may be as simple as, I really wish that guy would shut up. That is a bad attitude, by the way. We learn, no, we're supposed to love everybody. We're supposed to be kind. Instead of saying what you'd really like to throw out there on Facebook, you restrain yourself because you know your testimony is more important than being right. Because God told us those things. So in times of temptation, we look to God. And as we remember Scripture, it is powerful in those moments. Number two, Jesus used the Scripture to highlight the difference between truth and tradition. And this is where it starts to meddle in a little bit. Most of us don't mind the personal stuff. But all of a sudden, we're going to start talking about tradition and things going on. Now, tradition in and of itself is not bad. That's just the normal way we do things. The problem is when we make the normal way we do things God's way of doing things because it's our way of doing things. You know, we're just protecting the things that need to be preserved and we call them tradition. In the Gospels, you see a number of passages where Jesus speaks directly to people who are holding up tradition as good and right and the thing to do. And then he comes along and says, wait a minute, but the scripture says this. And he holds the two out and weighs them in the balance and tradition always loses. For instance, he addresses unbiblical religious vows in Matthew 15 and Luke 7. Selfish divorce regulations in Matthew 19. Overly strict Sabbath regulations in Luke 6. Outright doctrinal error in Matthew 22 and Luke 20. A lack of love and compassion by religious people in Luke chapter 10. But I want to look at Matthew 19 for a minute. Can we flip over to Matthew 19? I want you to see this. It's a good case study on exactly what the Lord's talking about here. Verse 3 says, Some of the Pharisees came to Jesus to test him, and they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Okay? Is it lawful? And so here's how Jesus answers, verse 4. He says, and he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Like, okay, there's the scripture, there's your answer. But the Pharisees are like, hold it, wait a minute. I got a Bible verse 2. And they flip back down and it says, wait a minute. 
Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? There was a provision in the law that if there had been a certain set of circumstances, a marriage could be dissolved. Okay? Very close set of circumstances. What we're talking about here is only really one option, and that was if indecency was found or immorality, if the wife had been involved in a relationship with another man. It's called indecency, it's called immorality, it's called several things, but that was the standard. So what Christ did was he said, here's your question, you want to know about divorce? Here's the answer, God desires permanence. God created us for permanence in marriage relationships. It's not supposed to come apart. But if a circumstance arises where that kind of violation of the covenant has arisen, they were allowed, not encouraged, or not here where they say commanded, they were allowed to dissolve the relationship. Okay, so the Pharisees are right. They said he could do it, right? Look back, look at the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, we need to note one thing here. At this time in history, a Jewish man could divorce his wife for just about any reason he could think of. <clears throat> Literally, some of the writings in the, from, from some of the rabbis, if she burnt the dinner, he could divorce her. I'm not kidding. It was just that petty. That was their view. Now, that's the contrast we need to see. God's plan was permanence. He wanted it to be solid. Even if something bad did happen, he wanted them to work to permanence. Instead, they're saying, wait a minute. You know, we can just do whatever we want to here for any old reason at all. I'm, gonna, I'm writing the bill and out she goes. Christ held tradition and truth in contrast. And tradition loses every time. There was not any reason at all. It was only indecency, if you want to see that, one of the references in Deuteronomy 24. This was so shocking that even his disciples, not the Pharisees, his disciples said, wait a minute, if that's the standard, it's better not to get married. I hope nobody here feels that way. But that was the standard, the tradition. Hey, you know, we can get out of this if we don't like it. God's plan is permanence. So he contrasts truth and tradition to help people see that there is a way. God does have an answer, and he gives it to us in the Word. Do we struggle with tradition as opposed to truth? Can you think of anything? Most of us probably can. Now, we have standards and convictions, we call them. And we tell people that's the way to do things because that's the way I believe it. And it may be the way you believe it. And unless we find it directly in Scripture, you're entitled to believe that, but we can't elevate it to the place of truth. It can't do that. Tradition is a wonderful thing. Being conservative is great, as long as it's a conservatism fueled by love for Christ. Liberality is a wonderful thing. We need people who are looking to take care of people who are in need. But it's only good if it is tempered by love for Christ and love for people. We must keep things in line with God's word first. We can't let tradition come in. Now we get to where it starts getting a little different. In addition to saying we need to address specific problems like temptations with the scripture, we want to make sure we don't get involved with tradition. Now we've got to address the question of where do we get all that scripture from? 
How do we actually get to that point? And here's what I have found as I've spent a lot of time going through here. Jesus has for us a really high expectation of familiarity with the Scripture. A really, really high view of the Scripture. For instance, if we want to talk about just what Jesus did, just how He used the Scripture, in the book of Matthew alone, there are over 80 direct references or explicit allusions to the Old Testament. Like when I say explicit allusion, He just didn't quote it verse by verse, but you know exactly where He was. There are at least eight times where He refers to the Scripture or the laws and the prophets as a collective unit, as the Bible. He directly quotes, directly quotes, from 18 separate books in the Old Testament, covering every portion of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings, the history. There is no part of the Scripture that he does not quote and does not use as he tries to help people. That's that's pretty good. Now, the reason I mention that is he used all that when he went out and taught, when he was in people's homes when he was confronted by religious leaders. So just stop and think for a minute. What does that assume? Jesus used all this scripture, all these allusions, every part of the, I mean, like even the minor prophets, you know, the ones you're hard to find there right before you get the New Testament. He's assuming that the people who were listening knew those scriptures. They were familiar enough that when he would quote it, They knew what he was talking about and that he wasn't just talking. That's why so many times it would say the people were amazed because he spoke as one with authority and not like the scribes. The scribes would say, Rabbi Ben Eliezer said this. Jesus said, God said this in the Psalms. Rabbi George says this, God created the heaven and the earth. Rabbi so-and-so says this, God desires permanence. Over and over and over again, at least... 80 times, in one book. Whenever he spoke, it was the Word of God coming out, and he expected the people listening to know what he was talking about. That's amazing. We're talking about things like Moses, Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon, Hades, the Ten Commandments, Sabbath, specific prophecies from major and minor prophets, the teaching of the law regarding eternal life. Eternal life is found in the Old Testament. There are at least two times somebody comes and says, tell me what it is or here's what I think it is. And on both occasions, Christ said, yes. Solomon, Jonah, Abel, Zechariah, the Ninevites, the Queen of the South, Noah, Lot's wife, the teaching on lever at marriage. There you go. There's one that not many of us are very familiar with. The lineage of the coming Messiah, his betrayal and suffering, the bronze serpent in the wilderness, manna, The number of witnesses required before an accusation could be accepted by a a group in their nation. And that's just a sampling of what he expected them to know. Because most every time he never says, let me explain to you what I'm talking about, he just quotes it. And he assumes they know what he's saying. He takes it for granted that they are familiar enough with the Scripture So when he quoted something and then made a teaching application, they could follow him. Familiarity is the best word I could come up with. I don't want to say memorized. Uh, 
people in the Old Testament didn't memorize all the scripture. The priests did. There were certain groups that did those kinds of things. But please remember, these were not people who had copies of the Bible in their homes. They didn't have scrolls sitting over on the shelf. Hey, let's pull out Malachi and see what he's got to say tonight and rip that down. You know, and read about the windows of heaven being open. They didn't have that. They didn't go to church every week and hear preaching or teaching or have Bible studies. They did go to teaching times when it was available. Remember again, this was an agrarian society. These people were farmers. Anybody here really worked on a farm? It's like a sun-up to sundown job, kids. It is not easy work. I worked in a, I worked in a, farm, in a farming community at a church uh, in Illinois, and we had farmers in the church. And one of the first things the pastor told me, he says, now, Mark, when you're preaching and you see people sleeping, do not be offended. I'm like, okay, fine, I won't. I don't, I'm not that interesting. He said, no, 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 you got to understand, these people are dog tired. If you have an evening service, you're going to have a church full of sleeping people. And we did. But they wanted to be together for fellowship. But when you sat down and stopped, more than likely they went to sleep because they were tired. But what they had in Israel was really twofold. Their history was the Bible. The history of their nation was what we call the Old Testament. They learned these things as part of their culture. And then they were religiously instructed from time to time. How that all happened, we don't have a great, clear idea. We do know that once the priests turned 50, they no longer ministered in the temple or in the tabernacle, and they would go out into the cities and teach, however that worked. But what I want you to understand is these people did not have the access to Scripture that you and I have. But yet Christ could quote from obscure passages, and they understood him. Now, I'm not scolding you saying if you don't know everything in Ezekiel, you're a bad person. What I'm saying is when we talk about being familiar with Scripture, we're trying to figure out how can we best access God's Word to help us in our lives as we serve Him. So really, that you know, I, I throw these stats up there for kicks. We didn't get to write them down. That's okay. Two questions really come to mind. Number one, how do we become familiar with God's Word today? I don't know if there's a one answer. The very first answer that probably jumped into your mind as did to mine is read it. We read the scripture. Okay, I'm going to read the Bible. But I need to be familiar. Jesus assumes familiarity. So how familiar is familiar? I mean, I'm familiar with Brother Tim over here. We've talked, we've done things. I don't know his wife's name. I couldn't pick her out of a crowd. Okay, but Stacy and I are very familiar, and I've known Vicki a long time. I could pick her out. And that's okay. Marjorie Elliott, where Marjorie's parents were here last week. I walked into her dad. I knew her dad. I didn't know that until you know, we, I walked in and looked, sat down. I actually was familiar enough to remember calling by his name. I remembered his wife. Okay, there are varying degrees of familiarity. How familiar do we need to be? Well, I think, you know, number one's easy. Read the Bible. How much do we read? What do we do? Familiarity is gained by degrees. Just like you learn people you learn the scripture. So the more you spend time with someone, the more you learn about them. The more you learn about the things they're going through. That's why we have you know, separate meetings. We do connections, lunches, and things like that. We want you getting more familiar with each other. 
Dictionary definition for familiarity is a close acquaintance with or a knowledge of something. So I think whatever, however it shakes down, we've got to say the more you expose yourself to something, the more familiar you will become. So the more we expose ourselves to God's Word, the more familiar we will be with what is there. But we have to go one step further because Christ did. And here's where it gets really interesting. We're to take the Word and apply it in our lives, times of temptation and trial. We're to use the Word to guard us so that we don't elevate good things over the Scripture. And we know that by learning about the Scripture. But we can't be satisfied with just knowledge. Because Christ goes beyond familiarity and He assumes that we can reason from the Scripture. Let me say this again. Christ assumes that we can think through the Scripture. And this was by far the concept that gets the most attention when you look at Christ using Scripture in the New Testament. Not only does He say you need to be, and I'll use the word significantly, familiar with the Scripture. He expects us to be able to take that Scripture and apply it to things that are going on around you, or to apply it to, for instance, the bad teaching you might hear. You might understand, say, wait a minute, how do these two verses work together? He's assuming that we can do that. Now, this is something that, that we struggle with as we look at Scripture. This is what we need to do. We need to think it through. We need to read the Scripture to understand Now, that becomes difficult when we start talking about read your Bible. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But you need to think through what's going on. Uh, I had, as I went back through all the verses and look at all these situations, I had two full pages of examples where Christ assumed they were reasoning or he reasoned for them and then said, why don't you understand this? Literally, how do you not understand this? Matthew 5, 21, Jesus showed the people that murder was only one form of hatred and that all hatred is bad and just say, well, I didn't kill the guy doesn't excuse you for hating him. 5, 27, adultery is only one form of immorality. If you're allowing immorality into your mind through whatever vehicle, it's just as bad as if you had committed the act. It's an affront to God. Verses 31 and 32 of chapter 5, the same thing about divorce and remarriage. The easy getting out, the easy ditching of people, not caring for people who are in the image of Christ. Matthew 15, he expected them to understand that honoring your father and your mother was more important than a religious vow. Regardless of how good the vow was, they were to be able to reason through it. In Matthew 22, Christ turns around and says, wait a minute, okay, let me ask you, can you think through this one? Christ is whose son? They say, he's the son of David. So he says, but in Psalm 110, David says that the Messiah is his Lord. How can he be his Lord if he is his son? That went totally counterculture. But he expected them to be able to think through that. And it wasn't really hard. Most of you could probably give me the answer. Well, Messiah isn't literally David's immediate son. He's in David's lineage. And because he's Messiah, though he's down the line, we know he's God. So, of course, David would call him Lord. 
And he didn't say, okay, oh, you got to pass. That was an easy one or a hard one. He expected them to figure it out. Luke 18, you remember the rich young ruler came to Christ? said, Lord, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Christ said, keep the commandments. And he said, got that. Kept all of them. I can do that. So Christ said, that's fine. Take everything you have and sell it and give it to the poor. And then we find out what he was struggling with. It said, he had much wealth. And he couldn't separate himself from it. Christ didn't really want him to go out and sell it all. He pointed at him and said, here's the problem. I'm going to keep you from eternal life. You value things more than you value me. You're not willing to give that up to get to here. And he didn't cloak that. He looked right at him and told him. He expected him to reason from here to here. Let's look at two examples. Let's look at one example. Let's not do two. I've got it right here in my notes. Look at the time. Maybe only use one of these examples. <laughs> Literally. I'm, no joke. It's right here. I'll show it to you if you want to see it. Luke 14. Flip over to Luke 14, would you? This is great because it happens several times in, in the Gospels. Uh, Christ comes to a place, he goes to a synagogue, he goes to somebody's home. It really doesn't matter where it is. It happens on the Sabbath, three or four times. And in the crowd, among the people who are there, there's a person who has a physical deformity, a physical illness, something that needs healing physically. And Luke 14 says it happened one of these times. He went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, a religious leader, a guy who knew the scripture, okay? This wasn't just Joe Blow. This guy knew what was going on. On the Sabbath to eat bread. And they, the Pharisees, were watching him closely. And, in front, and there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. In the, in the language of the New Testament, it's a little easier to, to catch what's going on. It says, behold, there was a man in front of him with the dropsy. As if, oh, look, this guy just happened to be here. It was a plant. It was a setup. This was a trap. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees after he saw this man in obvious need. He's moved to compassion and says this, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament or with Jewish history, you know that there are some pretty strict things about the Sabbath, and they're really careful and how far you can walk and you know what you can do, and can you build a fire, can you not build a fire. Even today, in New York City, which is one of the most populated areas with Jewish people, they still have Sabbath elevators. On Saturday, the elevator hits every floor every time because if you push the button, that's working. That's not work. But they've gotten to the point where the tradition, as opposed to the scripture, the truth, has won out, and they're, they're stuck on that. So we have the same situation here. Here's a Sabbath thing. If you do anything on the Sabbath, unless it goes right through their list, this is going to be a problem. And he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And that's what we need to... Is it lawful? Is it right? Is it according to Scripture to do this? But they kept silent because they wanted him to figure it out. They wanted to catch him in something. And he took hold of him, the man. He healed him and sent him on his way. So we know they're not really up to speed on this, and this is going to set them off. Look at how he addresses it. Here's what he's thinking for them. Here's how you need to reason from Sabbath law to life. Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? 
So if really, you know, if pushing a button is work, if your kid falls down the elevator shaft, you can't chase him on the Sabbath. You got to let him sit until, you know, Sunday night, 12.0.1. That's exactly what they're saying. Christ says, if it's your son and he falls into a pit, an empty well, are you going to let him sit there all Sabbath day? What if he's hurt? What if it's your child down there screaming in pain from a broken leg? Sorry, Sabbath day can't help you. God bless you. If it's your ox, something very valuable to you, in the pit, a lot of those pits still retained water in them, very muddy, animals, you know, especially uh, herd animals, get sick very easily in those kind of situations. Nope, can't do it. I'll get you out tomorrow if you're still alive. Do you see the correlation? Do you see what he's asking? Is it okay to be merciful on a day when we rest? And the obvious answer is absolutely The power of God was just seen in front of them healing this man. They could make no reply. He expected them to reason from that. They should have been able to do it. So with all that in mind, we have three or four takeaways as we look and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? How am I supposed to be related to the word? And this is, it's going to start rough and get better, I promise. Number one, there are no rules. I hate to say that. What I mean by that is there are no specific requirements about how much of the scripture you need to read every day. There is no law that says when you must read it. There's no law that says which Bible you should be reading. There's nothing that says you must study for X amount of time. Now, as a pastor, as your friend, I I wish it said something. Because I want all of us to understand that the Scripture is the only way we're going to live this life the way God wants us to do it. If you're not familiar with how God wants you to live, life will be tough. Pastor mentioned this morning in our pre-service prayer meeting, very often as we counsel, people struggle with things and they come to the point where they want help. First question one of us normally asks is, What's your walk with the Lord like? How do you spend time with the Scripture and things like that? And this is the normal reaction. I get that, okay? It's not easy to to do all the time. I can't tell you how much you need to read to be familiar enough with the Scripture to live the life Christ wants you to live. But I can say if you're not reading, that's not the answer. How many days a week should you read? Every day, if you can. But I don't know your schedule. You may not be able to do that. You may be able to spend one day. When you know, there are no specific requirements. There's no verse that says anything about it even close. I looked, really, I wanted to find, I, got on the, I googled. You know, somebody may have found something I didn't. It's not there. But number two. Consume, 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 consume. Get all you can, however you can. But do it thoughtfully. God would much rather you read one verse and worked through it than you tell me that you read five chapters a day. Because read, read, read is great if you're paying attention. But if you're not, what's the point? Here's what happens. It becomes tradition. It becomes an empty religious practice, and the only person that feels good about it is you. 
and it cloaks your real need in your walk with Christ. Because, hey, I did my thing. I read. You know what? We go to grace group. That last question is always, what did you read this week? And I got something because I read. And we feel good about that. But if you can't reason it out so that when you're in a situation and respond biblically, what good did all the reading do? Consume, consume, expose yourself to the Word. I'm grateful. I, some of my friends and I have been together, and we'll read extended passages. But then, you know, you go back and you spend time in one place to, to glean what is there. There is value in consuming a lot of Scripture. But not if that's all you're doing. We need what God has to say to us. We need it a lot. But we need to be paying attention because... This is how God speaks. The Holy Spirit, through His Word, tells us how to do things. Gives us that little inclination that says, yes, I need to talk to her. And then the Lord graciously opens a door of ministry. I learn to bite my tongue when the Holy Spirit says no. And then I get the opportunity to do something right because I was able to choke it back because it was the right thing to do. And that's behind a keyboard too, folks. Consume thoughtfully. Number three, here may be a way for you to understand where the standard is. If you can't remember it, you're probably not familiar enough. If you get into situations and you're regular, if, if the scripture doesn't come to mind, I don't mean direct giant, giant revelation from the Lord, lights and thunder and all that kind of thing. If you're not gaining an understanding of the scripture that affects your life, you're not familiar enough. I don't know how, wherever. I'm just saying, if it's not working in you, if you're not changing, if you're not, here we go, growing because of the scripture you're taking in, you're not taking in enough or not often enough or you're not thinking through it. And then I want to offer this wonderful, wonderful hope that made me feel so good. Uh, my buddy Bob Hansen and I were talking about this the other day and he brought this up and I just looked at him and said, man, that's really smart. Everybody's different. Everybody grows at different rates. And you know what? That's okay. Most of us are familiar with the parable of the sower or the seed. Remember the sower, it, it fell on the, on the path and it fell on the stony ground and it fell on the thorny ground and all that kind of, and didn't produce anything or came up and died right away. But some fell in good soil and it produced all of it 100% and it was amazing. <clears throat> That's not right. It says some produce 30%, some 60, some 100. We're all to be progressing toward the goal. But you know what? If you're at 30, that's okay. You're at 30. You're not at one or zero or negative numbers. That's a good thing. Well, I don't know as much as him. That's okay. Keep working on what God has for you right now. Let the scripture do what it needs to do for you now. And it may be that down the road you go from 30 to 60. That may be God's will as you grow. I certainly don't expect someone who's come to Christ and begun following him for two years to know as much as somebody at 20 years. But to your folks, listen, you're on the right path. This is a good thing. You may be the low number right now. You have a number and God's pushing you forward. Keep that desire to do that. For those of us who are in the, the later category, you know, we've been at this a while. Keep pushing. Let the scripture do what it needs to do in your heart. God wants to change you whether you're 5, 15, or 50. 
And he does that through his word. The soil needs to be receptive. And as we let the word come in and change us, we grow, we mature, we do the right things. Now, if you're struggling, let me just tell you this. If you're not in the not familiar category, I can't give you everything, but I can tell you this. You need a plan. You say, Pastor Mark, you know, I, I wrestle with this thing. You need a plan. You need a focused plan. You need to write out what you're going to do. Like, I'm going to read, you know, X number of chapters in my, or I'm going to read from this one book. We can talk. Please catch one of us after the service. We'd love to sit down with you over coffee this week or at lunch and really work with you and help you see what you can do. It's very attainable. I was told to use the word sustainable. It is, and that's true. God will always work in our hearts. His word gives us sustainability in the Christian life. Because if it's depending on me or you, we're going to flop. But as we look at the word, if we let him get in there, it works, it works, it works. It is sustainable. Ask some of the older people in here this morning. Find out what God's word's done in their lives. They can tell you it works. Teenager, it's worth the effort now to start because it will help you as you go down the road. Mom and dad, your kids need to know your people of the word. They need to understand that. Gentlemen, everybody's eyes up here. Guys, your wives, your girlfriends, your daughters need to know your men of the word. That you will make your life according to what God says, not according to whatever you happen to feel like right then. It can be done. To grow in Christ's likeness, you must feed on the word of God. You must develop a hunger for what God has in store for you and for me as we yield ourselves to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so humbled that though it was no effort for you, you compiled the word of God for us. We look at it and it's a marvel to think that something could be so unified, so without error, so thoroughly righteous, and that you give that to us so that we can move forward as we serve you. You make this something that's attainable for us. And we're grateful. We praise you. We publicly acknowledge that you are good for giving us your word. We acknowledge, too, that we rather often don't do what we need to do in regard to the word. We don't spend time with it. Uh, our walk with you fails because we don't learn how you think because we're not in the scripture. But we ask that you would help us, that you would give us a desire, a hunger to feed on your word. So that as we go from this place and go day by day, that you would be our thought, that we would respond uh, as we learn from the scripture, that we would mold ourselves into the image of Christ, that your spirit would do that work in us, that we would learn to submit and obey, that your word would become valuable to us. We're so thankful that you're patient and kind that you love us, that you know how our needs can be met, and you've given us your word to do that. Help us to be faithful or charge our hearts to desire your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.